Hey guys, and welcome to the Abundance Alchemist podcast. I'm Caitlin Dorsey, an Abundance Alchemist, animal lover, trauma survivor to thriver, mindset expert, self-love junkie, and author. This is the place to be to grab those powerful tools, ideas, and inspiration to make lasting changes in yourself and your life. No more waiting, my friends, because it's time to show up unapologetically, radiate that confidence, and create a life you absolutely love. Time to buckle up and dive on in. Hello, my high-vibing tribe. I am so excited you guys are here today. As always, I have an awesome guest to introduce you today. Um, Today, we're talking to Dr. Josh Bess. He is a highly regarded teacher and psychiatrist. His clinical interests include ECT and other brain stimulation therapies through pharmacotherapy of treatment-resistant mood disorders and the treatment of catatonia. Um, Dr. Bess has authored several papers and the co-author of the Manual of Inpatient Psychiatry, now in its second edition. He has held leadership positions, including serving as president of the Washington State Psychiatric Association from 2019 to 2020. Welcome, Dr. Bess. Thank you so much. I'm excited to chat with you. Um, I'll kind of start by just telling, if you have us, or tell us how you kind of got to what you're doing today. Um, so I grew up in a small town and, you know, the, the sort of smart, successful people that you ran into most often was maybe the, the family doctor. And I went to college thinking I would be a family doctor or, or a pediatrician or something like that. And even made it as far as medical school, thinking that that was my path. My friends started to ask me, why aren't you going to be a psychiatrist? You're kind of good at this. (laughs) Um, but not until my um, third year of medical school where you start to do different rotations on different clinical and have different clinical experiences, did I really start to agree with them? And it just felt comfortable. So I became a psychiatrist and then found out that the people who I liked hanging out with, the colleagues and the mentors were the people who did um, ECT and treated, you know, patients in the hospital who were in many ways, the, the sickest of the sick, Mm -hmm. um, maybe had lots of other problems that were making their psychiatric problems worse, uh, et cetera. And so that's how I, I ended up on this path. Um, and it's been a really exciting journey ever since. Yeah. I love that. I, um, I worked in an involuntary psych unit in Newark, New Jersey for a bit. Um, and it was kind of, when I was figuring out which direction I wanted to go. And for a while I thought nurse practitioner route to kind of do the medication. Um, but I decided really quickly that I don't do bodily fluids. So I did not go to nursing school um, and decided to go kind of more of the counseling route. But I'm always really yeah. interested with um, psychiatry because I think that we've had so many things, especially with ECT um, that are, really traumatic, um, you know, that people think it's like this crazy out there, um, type of therapy. So I'm curious if you can kind of share, I know, um, you do a couple different ones and I'm really interested to kind of talk about which ones you are an expert in, uh, but let's start with ECT. And if you could kind of just tell us what it is and, um, what it's good for. Yeah. I mean, we'll just to first share your aversion to bodily fluids, which we <laughs> deal with less in, <laughs> in right. psychiatry. But um, yeah, the, you know, ECT, oh, wow. I mean, the stigma and the media portrayals and the and the things that, that go along with that. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't, we talk about this quite a bit in, you know, in, in, in different forums in the field, like we can't think of another um, you know, subfield or another treatment that just has so much baggage or so much 
um, opposition, um, be it from Scientology or other, you know, kind of pseudoscientific or whatever people with an agenda, you know, might come at you, right. um, you know, to be at a meeting, um, of your colleagues and, and talking about how to help people and have people protesting is, is a little <laughs> bit of a strange experience, but mm-hmm. EC, ECT was discovered like so many other things, observation. Um, I like to tell my residents and students that, you know, back when we didn't have as many choices for treatment, we spent a lot more time observing. And in in a way, that's a skill that we've lost somewhat. And people observe that um, patients in the hospital, asylum, whatever you want to call it, Mm -hmm. if they had a seizure, they had this period of of improvement in, in their various things that they were presenting with, whether that was um, hallucinations and psychosis or catatonia or what they called back then melancholia or depression. And so then the idea became, how can we, how can we make this happen? Um, and different things were tried, um, medications, chemicals, um, inducing seizures, um, electricity. You know, once we uh, understood that the brain is also an electrical organ, that was one path that was explored and, and actually people kind of figured it out. And so it took the field by storm in the forties and fifties and this is even before medications were were widely available mm-hmm. um, and, you know, helped a lot of people um, as portrayed in the media was used inappropriately in cases. And that's horrific. And, right. you know, we have to reckon with that history, but helped a lot of people. And then medications came on board in the 50s through the 60s. ECT sort of had a, a decline through some of that time. Um, and the psychiatric field was reckoning with you know, psychoanalysis versus medication and and what was the real quote unquote cure and ECC was still done, but it had sort of been subdued. But then through the eighties and nineties started, you know, having a resurgence when it was recognized that medications weren't going to fix everything in psychology or or psychotherapy isn't going to fix everything. And there are these people who get really stuck. Um, And so it, it became more, more accepted within the field and, over the last 10 or 20 years, you know, I've seen, you know, more acceptance um, outside the field and in, in, in the lay public and in other 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 places. But it, it has been a, a, a struggle and it continues to be part of my job to to dispel that that stigma. Yeah, it definitely is. I think, you know, there's even, um, you know, ketamine is another one that I think it has not as quite as intense of the um, pushback, but I do see, and I think it's hard because we do, um, we do as a society tend to push back about kind of more extreme treatments, but to the point where you're saying these are really helpful for clients that are in those involuntary commitment spaces. They're, you know, like you said, kind of these, the sickest of the sick um, and trying to really help them have a little bit more of a baseline um, or return to that baseline rather than, I don't want to use the word normal life, but um, kind of that idea. So who would you say, um, actually, let me back up. Can you talk a little bit about ketamine um, and that treatment? Because I will say for, for personally, I had a pretty big pushback when I first heard about ketamine um, simply because I um, am a horse person and I know that ketamine is a horse tranquilizer. (laughs) Um, but obviously it's a way different dosage. Um, but curious kind of, if you can talk about that too, and just, um, you know, who that would be beneficial for what that looks like. I, in many ways, there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot of overlap amongst all the different things that, um, are, 
used now in people with what we call either difficult to treat or treatment resistant conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, depression getting the most press and where a lot of the research is, but other things too. So, um, you know, so what I would say as far as who might be appropriate um, or for whom ketamine might be appropriate could also apply to ECT and vice versa and, and other things that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the ketamine story um, is not dissimilar in that we had this thing and, you know, it was sort of a, a chance um, discovery that, you know, somebody put together that, you know, people who were getting this um, medication, which has been around since the 60s, um, you know, just they happened to catch that, oh, well, the people in this group who had severe depression told us that their depression got better for a while, you know, Mm. a couple of days, maybe. That's interesting. Let's look into that. And so, you know, then you get on to the more um, intentional work of, okay, we're going to give these people ketamine and see what happens. Um, These are folks who either, and and I I tend to be... um, a professor of mine talked about lumpers and splitters, and I tend to be a lumper. I, I don't like lots of categories. A couple will do just fine. Um, <laughs> so people who are referred to a, a psychiatrist like me and might be considering one of these treatments, I think fall into two large categories. One mm-hmm. is they are um, e- extremely ill or extremely impaired by whatever is happening with them. And I understand that there's a lot of complexity and frustration with the illness, you know, narrative and and talking about it in that way. Mm-hmm. I'm a physician. That's where I came from, you know, mm-hmm. but I'm happy to talk about it in other ways too. Um, but whatever is going on with them is interrupting or getting in the way of them living the life that they want to live. Right. And you, you mentioned, you know, we don't want to talk about a normal life. We don't want to talk about, you know, what should be, but we are talking about day-to-day functioning in our society in a way that they want to. That's mm-hmm. that's how I focus on it. Mm-hmm. So whatever's happening with them is getting in the way in a serious way to the point where they're not taking care of themselves, they're you know not eating or their hygiene or their bodily care is having a detrimental physical effect on them in some way, not able to get out of bed um, or you know feeling very suicidal in, in, in terms of looking at that as something that's getting in the way of their ability to live the life they want to live. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's the one category where we need something to help right now. And so that's a person for whom we would say, okay, should we think about ECT? Should we think about ketamine? Um, And we can talk about the various forms of ketamine. Um, The other group, which is the larger group, but is just as frustrated and stuck and, and, you know, wanting to move on past whatever is happening with them are the people who have tried a lot of the other available treatments and they haven't gotten better mm-hmm. or haven't gotten all the way better. And there's a big movement in psychiatry and in mental health care in general um, to not settle for good enough, but to mm. aim for remission, yeah. you know, just like cancer, just like hypertension, just like diabetes, you know, we want to treat it until not that it's going to go away. It's still something you have to manage, but until it's not getting in your way, at all or very minimally. And so there are people who take medication and have a response to medication, but it's only a partial response. Or they're seeing a therapist and it's been very helpful in certain segments of their life or in certain ways, but there's still other things that are really getting in the way of them living, you know, to the extent that they want to and living to their potential. So, you know, it's not uncommon for me to meet someone who has been depressed at some level for five, 10, 15 years, or even longer, 
and they get some benefit from other treatments, but it just hasn't gotten them over, over that last hurdle. Um, and so we discuss treatments like ECT, ketamine, TMS, VNS stimulation, that sort of thing. And, you know, it, those situations, it's a, it's more of a, we have a little bit more time and we can talk about the pros and the cons and we have more choices. We can, we can do something less invasive first to see if that's helpful before say resorting quote unquote to ECT or something that requires um, more invasive intervention. But, you know, it's the same situation. They're stuck and things haven't worked and they want to get on with their life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love how you put that of getting over that hump. I have a client specifically that has been, working with a psychiatrist. um, Oh my goodness. I think like 15 years she's been in and out of different treatments. Um, She has been diagnosed with depression and um, she recently decided that she was going to try TMS. um, And she finished, you know, the entire um, process of TMS and she's not on any medications. And again, I'm not a psychiatrist, but hearing her report of how effective this was, was one of the main reasons I really was like, I need to learn more about this to, you know, bring, learn from an expert because it is showing from, you know, client feedback. And this is a conversation that needs to start being had about, you're right. We're not just focusing on this. It's good enough. It's no, I want to live a life that I, I enjoy and that I'm happy about. Um, So I think that's a big differentiation that you just made. That's right. Yeah. I mean, you know, relationships um, in whatever way that you want relationships, um, employment or vocation or occupation in ever in, in whatever way that that's meaningful to you. You know, it's not an expectation that you achieve a certain thing or that you have a certain kind of relationship, but it's the fact that, you know, very few people that I talk to, um, if they're in a, in a, in a very dark situation like that, want to be there. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's, that's really the goal. Um, you know, it's not to change people's personality. That's part of the stigma and part of the fear mm-hmm. It's not to, you know, create a, a society of lemmings. You know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, medications and, and things like that. And some, some movies from, from a couple decades ago that like explore that. And it really is a matter of getting people to be able to navigate these challenges to, to get on a, a, a more positive path for them. Um, and it's important to understand, and this is where I think the complexity um, makes it difficult for us, and it, it's not something that's a quick soundbite for a news story or for a for a for a, even for um, you know a, a relatively in depth like piece on sixty minutes or something. Like we're not very good at choosing ahead of time which treatment will be helpful for a particular person. There's a lot of work going on biomarkers, you know, can we have a blood test like we do for some cancers or for other things like diabetes? Can we have a brain image that would show us like it does for multiple sclerosis or other illnesses? Can we have an EEG signal that we see like for epilepsy, but that would show us that a person might respond to ECT over TMS or TMS over ketamine? Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of work to be done. And so right now it is um, as much as we hate to say it, trial and error. Yeah. <laughs> um, hopefully, relatively few trials and minimal error. But you know, people get frustrated and they think that we're just kind of spinning a spinning a roulette wheel. Um, and I just you know remind them, well, you know, you've tried eight medications, and you know, TMS is the next step in terms of 
you don't want something that's more invasive than that. But if this doesn't work, that doesn't mean that there isn't something else. Right. Yeah. I think I really appreciate that you brought up that point because I think that, you know, I have had several clients talk to me about like, I don't want to see a psychiatrist because I do just feel like they're going to put me on all this different medication. And, you know, the conversation that we have obviously has multiple places that we address that. But part of that conversation is, you know, the conversation about even going to a, a, you know, medical doctor for a physical symptom. It's the same thing. You are trying different medication to see how your body reacts to it. Same thing with psychiatry, seeing how your body and mind react to it, seeing how, you know, it's just, like you said, very different because we don't have the same um, things that show in, you know, the medical piece. There Um, was a really, um, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt. it, It reminds me, there was a really interesting piece in one of our uh, in a psychiatry newsletter, and gosh, I, I feel bad. I don't remember the author off the top of my head. Um, but the comparison, and again, this is about stigma against mental problems or mental mm-hmm. illness or psychiatric problems. But the comparison was really astute in that he was laying out how really this is a matter of chronic illness being ignored or stigmatized or, you know, not quite as um, glamorous and sexy to fix. And therefore, since these illnesses, by and large, not every single one, but the things that I work with are chronic, um, you know, it's an unfair comparison, let's say, between, um, you know, a decade of depression and a broken bone or even, you know, a brain hemorrhage or a heart attack, because that is an acute thing that has a very clear pathophysiology Mm -hmm. and the hero person, whether that's a doctor or some other healer can come in and, Mm -hmm. and, and fix it. And, but if you compare it to, um, you know, chronic rheumatologic illness, like arthritis, or to the things that, you know, we always, always compare it to like diabetes, um, some types of cancer that you just manage and aren't ever, you know, cured. um, We don't have answers. We don't have the white coat with a cape that can just fix it and it's not a problem anymore. Mm-hmm. And and those comparisons are more more reasonable. Um and since, you know, and, and and then if you start thinking about it from that perspective, those clients and and people who are suffering with those conditions are stigmatized too. You know, we see people with chronic pain and with the opioid crisis what they're going through. Yeah. We see people with these other sort of ill-defined or more syndromal um problems that, well, since I don't have an answer or a blood test, I'm not really sure what to do with you. Um, And so that helps, that really helped me kind of reorient myself in terms of, you know, it's not just because it's a psychiatrist necessarily, although we have, like I said, history that we have to reckon with, but, but it is that idea that it's not something I can kind of see on a stand and therefore remove it. Yeah. I like that you pointed out the the opioid epidemic. Um, That's something that I definitely work very close with um, working specifically in substance abuse. And Mm -hmm. I think that that, again, is one of the reasons I wanted to chat with you about these things, because there is this stigma in substance abuse of getting on any medication, right? Even like the traditional AA, there are some meetings where, you know, if you take anything, you're not in recovery. And so I think that you know, having these other options, even if like, I know you said TMS is less invasive than possibly like ECT, um, you know, having another place where you can go and talk to a professional and say, is this an appropriate idea? Or would this be an appropriate pathway for me to take? Um, 
is an option, which is, again, why this conversation is really important to be had. I do want to ask too, um, so I know that you recently touched on kind of like this fear and stigma about um, changing personalities. And Mm -hmm. I know that a lot of the therapies we're talking about, we've talked about depression, um, they can be used for OCD, PTSD, some of those things. Have you had an instant or would it be appropriate for somebody with a personality disorder, um, such as like borderline personality disorder, because again, that's a really big one that's stigmatized, um, to look into something um, with these kind of treatments, either ECT, ketamine, TMS, VNS? Yes. Um, So that is a very, very hot topic and has been for some time. Mm -hmm. And you know, you mentioned specifically borderline personality disorder, which, you know, for, for good or bad is the most well-known. And um, I I think in, in large part, because those, those folks come to care because Mm -hmm. they're in distress or their, their families are in distress about what they're up to and, and bring, you know, bring them in or encourage them to come. And so there has been actually a lot of research done in um, several of these modalities. Um, The, the rule of thumb, and it's not, it's not a perfect characterization at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but the rule of thumb is similar to medication that, you know, an intervention like um, ECT or TMS or, or ketamine can help with certain aspects of what that person is dealing with or suffering with. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have to step back from the idea that we're going to fix the borderline right. PD. Um, but there are people with, um, you know, maybe they have a well-documented 20-year history of, of what looks like borderline personality disorder. Mm-hmm. And they have, besides that, very clear episodic depression. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in that context, an antidepressant during those depressive episodes is, is quite appropriate, as long as you're very clear about what you're going after and the limitations of it. Um, mm-hmm. Where, where we have to be really careful and where a lot of this research has come through is, you know, there's a, there's a stigma inside the field too, not only about, you know, these patients are difficult or, mm-hmm. or high risk or whatever, but this idea, well, nothing's going to help. Right. Um, and so, you know, my colleagues and I talk about this with, you know, pretty, we talk about this with, with regularity you know, let's be honest and talk with this person about how, how we can help them, but how we can't, we have to have other, um, you know, modalities involved We're we're involved with talking with their therapist, with mm-hmm. their other, you know, whoever else they're, they're, they're seeking help from or getting help from and making sure that they're getting that support too. Um, I will note, and this is just something that I just found so fascinating that I, I think about it a lot. Um, TMS in particular, and my guess I guess is that we might come to some understanding with ketamine too, but TMS in particular um, seems to, one of the ways that we can kind of theoretically sort out how it might work, seems to kind of calm the chaos in your brain. Um, And since it's not as invasive and there aren't as many side effects, which is a big problem with ECT, Mm -hmm. um, there's actually some literature to suggest that someone with symptoms of borderline personality disorder, which, you know, we know often comes along with trauma, Mm -hmm. um, substance abuse, something like, or excuse me, substance use disorder, something like that. Those things that are chaotic, you know, a history of trauma or substance use or interpersonal relationships that are very difficult 
TMS has a way of, um, you know, kind of calming all of that. And there was a presentation I saw that was really interesting about the default mode network and some of these other networks in the brain and how if they can kind of be rebalanced, um, many of those things get better. You know, you're still in therapy, um, still encouraging people to do DVT and other, right. you know, solid interventions. But if you can kind of calm the the chaos in, you know, the, in the brain um, that, that people do respond. And so we have a very open approach with, you know, there's no, um, there's no uh, um, uh, absolute uh, contraindication that just because you might have this, this set of problems along with what we're looking at with our intervention, we just are very clear about what, what the expectations are. Yeah. I, I think that's a, Great answer to kind of see that. And I, I do want to take a step back to if uh, my listeners are not aware of kind of what falls under like a treatment resistant psychiatric illness. Um, I know we mentioned a few, but could you explain really what that means? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I need to point out that the definition of it has evolved and is evolving. Mm-hmm. Um, so sort of it's a, it's a little bit circular. Um, since we're talking about treatment and we're talking about treatment for treatment resistant disorder, mm-hmm. you know, so it's, so it's, a, it's a definition that, that, that relies on the definition of itself. Right. So, right. um, kind of the, 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 general gist is the general gist is you've tried a couple of things, a handful of things that are available and you haven't gotten that much better, or you certainly, or if you haven't gotten into remission. Now, there have been efforts to, you know, be very, very strict in that definition or, or very, very precise, like, well, if a person with major depressive disorder has had, you know, adequate dose and duration trials of two antidepressants or four antidepressants, or, you know, a certain number of antidepressants with different classes or different augmentation strategies, all these kind of complex you know, Venn diagram flow charts um, mm-hmm. <laughs> about treatment trials, then that's the definition of, of treatment resistant depression or the, the sort of new kid on the block term is, is difficult to treat depression. So DTD. Um, and, and then that, that sort of rubric also then applies to OCD, um, psychotic disorders or schizophrenia, PTSD, uh, et cetera. So generally, and since our, since this is the, the, world we live in, you know, generally we're talking about medications, um, but it could be also a course of psychotherapy as a, a treatment trial um, mm-hmm. on that list. Uh, some, you know, and then in some cases, by the time they're coming to me, um, maybe they've already tried TMS or maybe they've already tried ketamine. So that's in there too. Um, but the people who, you know, haven't responded to what we would say were the first line, second line, um, you know, there was a large trial in the mid 2000s that, you know, it's, it's, it's flawed, but it's the best that we have. And it was, it was pretty groundbreaking when it came out, but they had, you know, several thousand people getting sequential antidepressant trials. You know, a third of the people responded to the first medication. So they, it was great for them. Mm-hmm. Right. And then a third of the people responded by the time they got through the second, third or fourth medication, longer effort, you know, frustrating in some ways, but still, you know, kind of in their regular doctor's office or, or seeing a, a general psychiatrist or nurse practitioner or PA didn't have to jump through too many hoops. Mm-hmm. But where we work is the last third, the third of the mm-hmm. people that went through several of those, of those steps, which were 
state of the art, you know, algorithmic solid trials, but they still didn't get relief or get enough relief. And so that's generally what we're talking about. Okay. Yeah. I, I wanted to just kind of help frame that for our listeners too, that we're not talking about that, you know, there's no help. And, and also kind of this idea, like you said, we're talking about treatment resistant illnesses, but here's treatment. Um, so I wanted to kind of frame that. Um, and I, I do want to ask too, one that we have not touched on, um, which I will say, I have heard kind of the idea of vagus nerve um, in a lot of different kind of fields and more like the holistic field, as well as the medical field. So can you tell us kind of what the vagus nerve is, and then um, specifically go into kind of vagus nerve stimulation? Yeah, so the vagus nerve is is, um, one of the um, large, um, they call it like a super highway of, of information in your body. And it's remarkable. Um, the name I think means wanderer um, or something like that. And it's remarkable, and it's called that because of this the large number of connections that it makes. And the the main gist is that it connects your brain to a lot of um, your gastrointestinal tract and your heart and your lungs, and and is the pathway through which. Um, your brain sends signals to your organs, but then also the other way. So afferent and efferent are the fancy terms for those um, signals. And so away from the body and to the body or away from the brain to the brain, depending on what you're talking about. Um, and so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a information highway and anatomically convenient because of the way that we're built. <laughs> you know, we have a neck that is like the connection between the brain and everything else mm-hmm. um, where stuff is kind of like smushed together, but, but easy to get at. Um, and, and so somebody had the idea that, well, you know, if there's a way to harness or to access this, this highway and send further signals that aren't coming from your, the body, but from a stimulator, mm-hmm. um, can we then influence the brain? Right. Um, and, and so they hooked up the, the vagus nerve to a stimulator and ran through different parameters and different settings and such, and were able to help people with seizures, with epilepsy. Um, and the, the vagus nerve kind of, it has a general, you know, function of, of calming, right? It's not, that's not everything. Um, but it's kind of thought that way. So, you know, if you, um, if you, um, you know, if your heart rate's beating fast, you've kind of, you know, if you vagal yourself or if you bear down, you can kind of slow it down, you know, there's that sort of thing. Um, and so it was successful. It helped some people who hadn't responded well to anti-seizure medications and therefore also prevented the need for brain surgery. Hmm. Um, and my understanding is that similar to the people with seizures in the asylum in twenties and thirties or people who got ketamine as an anesthetic and their depression got better. Then the, the, the observation was made, Oh, you know, some of the folks who also have depression along with their epilepsy, their, their depression got better. And, you know, people started putting, you know, connecting the dots and saying, well, if the depression in your brain is sort of a, a maybe overactivity of certain areas, this calming signal that we're able to send through this information highway to the brain, um, could help with that. 
And so in the mid 2000s, um, it was FDA approved. Uh, it wasn't super, it, the data wasn't like fantastic, mm-hmm. but there was a caveat that these were people who really had tried everything. Um, you know, up to and including ECT, uh, TMS wasn't available yet. And so there was a fair number of people who got them implanted in that era. Um, but then it sort of tapered off. Mm-hmm. And the the thing about the vagus nerve stimulation for depression is it, it takes a long time. It's not an acute treatment like ketamine or ECT or even TMS or even medication where it came back and now it's kind of making a resurgence. Mm-hmm. Um, and I should disclose that my, my clinic is a site in a study um, for vagus nerve for depression. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm not the PI, but I'm a sub investigator was once we had enough data of all those people that got implanted after it was approved and follow them over years and years, which is very rare in medical research. Mm-hmm. We saw that people started getting or kept getting better over that whole time. And so these curves, these graphs in the journal articles are actually quite remarkable that over a five-year span, people are continuing to get better. And so that means that people who yeah, may have taken them three or four years for it to quote kick in, but more and more people were entering remission. Um, and so then that encouraged the manufacturer, which by then had been acquired by somebody else, et cetera, um, to, to try to study it again. And so then that's the study that we're doing now, um, you know, large multi-site, very um, intensive study. Um, so that's the general gist. Now, it does border on the, you know, overlap with the uh, holistic um, mm-hmm. other approaches, you know, some Eastern approaches and, and even, Um and, you know, we have, a, we have also lively debates about this in, in, amongst my group of colleagues. Um, and there are other ways to, to stimulate this nerve. So there, you know, what I've been talking about and the, the, the procedure that's being studied right now is a, it, it is an operation. It's a surgery that puts a pacemaker-like device in your chest wall. And then there's a wire that goes up into your neck. And then there are connections into the nerve in your neck. Mm. It's a surgery. It could have risks. It has risks and side effects. Um, the, the stimulation itself has, um, some side effects. And so people have looked at, well, we know that the vagus nerve have, has branches that go lots of different places. Mm -hmm. Um, one place that's particularly easy to get at where there's a branch of the vagus nerve is the ear. Um, and so certain parts of the ear can have an external stimulator, uh, applied, and same principle, you're sending the signal backwards, but that's part of the job of the vagus nerve and its branches. Um, and there's some, you know, very, very preliminary data that doing that actually does do something. You know, we have to refine what it's doing and figure out how to put that in our model or categories of disease or symptoms. But it's, you know, there's there's good data that it's doing something. And so I think that's going to be the next, the next couple of steps will be, you know, having the the main procedure that we know can work for a lot of people become more available, but also are we going to be able to at least try something less invasive first to give us some idea of whether it would work? Mm, Yeah. Well, thank you for kind of um, giving a a broader picture and and also including that there are the the Eastern medicine approaches again with limited Mm -hmm. data. Um, Cause I know, like you said, I've heard that the vagus nerve is like you said, making that resurgence of coming back to say, Hmm, this is a topic that we're looking at. This is a topic that we want to learn more about um, in both kind of the Western and Eastern medicine field. So I think yep. that that's a a good thing to um, for our listeners to know as well. Um, 
I want to thank you so much. I know we're getting tight on time and I think you shared so much information and um, answered all my questions that I had. So I'm super thankful and glad that I um, got to have a conversation with you. You definitely know, um, know your stuff. (laughs) Thank you. I know. I really appreciate talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. And um, for our listeners, thank you so much for um, spending time with us. I know your time is valuable and I appreciate that you spent it with us. I will put Dr. Bess's information um, in the episode notes so that you can um, get a hold of him. If you have any questions, feel free to put them in the episode's notes. Um, subscribe, rate, and review. We want to know what you thought. Um, and again, if you have any questions, I'm happy to reach out or you can reach out to Dr. Bess um, and get in contact with him. So thank you so much, Dr. Bess. And I um, will talk to you guys soon. Thank you for hanging out with me on the Abundance Alchemist podcast. Don't forget to head over and grab your free self-love activation meditation at theabundancealchemist.com and hit subscribe here so you don't miss a thing. Until next time, sending you so much love.